Jennifer Carmen, and I'm an alcoholic. And I love this program because it saved my life. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And my life when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, 28 years, 10 months, and a week ago, was spiraling downward faster than I could lower my standards. So I know I'm in the right place tonight because I've got a sense of ease and calm. And, um, and I see so many people here that I love. Um, and I'm so happy to welcome any newcomers that are new to Alcoholics Anonymous. Fasten your seatbelt. Your future isn't what it used to be. And no matter what you're going through or what you're feeling or what you're sensing, the worst is behind you. I guarantee you that. I, um, I want to thank my friend Danny D for inviting me to speak to this group tonight. And um, it's always an honor and a privilege to be Danny D's wingman because if you've never heard Danny speak, you're in for a treat. So I'll just launch right into my story. Um, I was born in Akron, Ohio, and my mother was very young when I was born. I was given to my great grandparents to raise. And my great-grandparents were in their late 80s, and my great-grandparents' parents were in the Civil War. So they were old people. I was born in Akron, Ohio, coincidentally. Um, and my great-grandparents brought me by train to California, to Pomona, California, to raise me. And, um, and we had a very rural, modest life. My great-grandfather was a Pentecostal preacher. He was a preacher at the Christian Missionary Alliance Church. And if you don't know what Pentecostals are, they are hellfire and brimstone, a punishing God. And, um, and it was terrifying. I remember as a young child, the messaging was always horrifying. I was always on edge. And all my great-grandfather talked about was miracles. That's all he ever talked about. You know, 333 miracles in the Bible and Jesus performed 35 of them. And, you know, we never saw any miracles in my life. We had this really modest, modest life. And I would say to my great grandpa, Pop, how come we never see any miracles? And he would say, well, Deborah, what kind of miracle are you looking for? And I said, Pop, we need a TV. You know, in the eyes of a child, I just needed more. I knew at that time, brought, being raised in that particular lifestyle, I knew I needed more and I needed different. And no matter what I had, I knew it wasn't enough. So I was really uncomfortable in this little um, blonde haired, you know, toe headed, big eyes, saucer eyed kid with um, a great imagination. We had a chicken farm. So I only knew really I was homeschooled and about the only thing I knew anything about were old people, Christians and chickens. So um, I couldn't wait to grow up and get out of there. But interestingly enough, by the time I was 14 years old, my great grandparents were on a pension pocketbook, their health was failing, their age was, they were getting really old. And I was told that I was going to be living with my mother. And my mother was this very glamorous gal who was a model for Clairol. She always had fast cars and a lot of men and pink hair and lots of cleavage and tight dresses and high heels. And she was the epitome of what a Hollywood movie star would look like. And she had six husbands. 
And her mother had five husbands and those are the ones they married. They were wild, exciting women. And I knew when I looked at my mother, I wanted to be different. I wanted to be something different than what I was. And um, I went home to live with my mother when I was 14 and it was very, very uncomfortable. She was on husband number six. His name was Dick Tate, which was very appropriate when you're a 14 year old child and you don't wanna constantly hear, no, you can't. Kids should be seen and not heard. Go to your room, we'll call you for dinner. There was just no familial context for me to feel comfortable in. So my level of uncomfortability continued to grow. And of course I'd been homeschooled. And so I was suddenly thrust into this environment of academic learning. I didn't have social interactive skills with other kids. I was just an oddball. I was an oddball who wanted to be different. And um, so I complied with my mother's rules and it was uncomfortable for a long time. And by the time I was 16, I had acquired a couple of friends and one of those friends asked me to a party. And I'm 16 years old. I'm a girl that's been raised on a chicken farm by old people and Pentecostal upbringing. And I'd never been to a party. We never had Christmas parties. We never had birthday parties. We never had parties like I heard other people had. So you can imagine the excitement of being 16 years old going to my first party. I went to that first party and I can tell you what happened at that first party. I drank a quarter rum. I, um, I drank a pint of slow gin, a six pack of beer. I smoked a pack of cigarettes and I got a nail and a potato and I pierced both ears. And by dawn's early light, God knows what other orifices had been penetrated, punctured, plundered, or otherwise uh, promiscuously um, nuanced, but um, I was a changed kid. I was a changed kid. And I loved the effect produced by alcohol. I loved that effect. It transformed me. It made me feel attractive. It made me feel smart. It made me feel like I could fit in. It made me feel funny. It made me feel lighthearted. It made me feel daring and brave and reckless. And, um, and it made me feel like I could break the rules and get away with it. And I did for a long time. And so right there, right all of a sudden, what happened that night was I turned into this bodice ripping, thong snapping, tabletop stripping, pole dancing, vodka guzzling, whiskey slugging, gin swilling, chain smoking, pill popping, drunk driving, car wrecking, credit card scamming, husband stealing, check kiting, tax evading, cheating, lying, thieving, skank ass whore. I'm the girl your mother warned you about. And I'm 16 years old. And that was the beginning of my romance with alcohol. And I no longer needed the God of my great grandfather's understanding. I found my own God in a bottle and I worshiped it. And what I also found was that if I was awake, I needed that transformative power of alcohol. If I was awake, I was drinking. By the time I was 19 years old, I did a week in the Tijuana jail. 
what kind of moon-faced, wild-eyed, toe-haired, developing young woman spends a week in the Tijuana jail and lucky to get out? Tijuana is a pretty rough border town. And for those of you that don't know much about um, border town jails, it's nothing I would recommend. I haven't talked to a lot of people who've spent time in that jail and most people don't get out. Also, by the time I was 19 years old, I made a really, really bad decision fueled by my alcoholism and my best thinking, which said that um, I can sleep with strangers and, and I had no idea that the consequences might result in a pregnancy. I had no idea that I could raise a child and I certainly didn't have the skill to. I was, <laughs> yeah, you know what? That's what I needed. I needed somebody to identify the problem. I'm 19 years old and I couldn't identify identify the problem. Alcohol was a solution for me. So I had a late term abortion by a stranger in a hotel room. Four guys held me down. At the time I had this done, it was a capital crime, which means I would have probably gone to jail for the better part of my life. I had no idea that those were the consequences. Fortunately, that didn't happen. But what did happen, something occurred that changed my life forever. I was never to have children. One more time, alcoholism has affected what would be my future and altered it forevermore. So I had a series of jobs. I had a couple of marriages and, um, and I had a couple of businesses. I used alcohol every day of my life. I didn't think I had a drug problem, but I did have a weight problem that I managed and moderated with uh, copious amounts of pharmaceutical propellants and accelerants. So by the time I, um, I figured out how really sick I was, I was doing a lot of speed and drinking a lot and chain smoking and consequences were piling up. And because I have a short amount of time tonight, I wanna to get into the solution. I, um, I found myself 25 years later after that beer party, waking up to what had become the catastrophe of my life with all kinds of consequences, legal problems, drunk driving problems, car wrecking problems, all kinds of problems. And, and my solution, I was facing a case, another case. And, um, and my solution was to get a criminal trial lawyer to get me jail time, to get me double the mandated sentencing requirement for the crime I had committed but did not sentence me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how sick I was. That's, that's how I did not perceive my alcoholism as a problem still. I thought it was a right to drink. And I was willing to surrender my driving privilege, on the other hand, for life. And that judge looked at me and took off her beady little spectacles. And she said, Deborah Carmen, how low do you want to go? and you could have pierced my heart with an arrow. For the first time that shame washed over me, the consequences of my life were staring me right in the face. I did not know what to do. You know, I hear people all the time say I couldn't stop drinking. I can't say that. I wouldn't stop drinking. There was no way I would stop drinking. I never tried to stop drinking because I knew I couldn't stop drinking. But that judge gave me six weeks to think about entering that plea before the court would accept it. 
And in those six weeks, my life spiraled downward into this abysmal, hopeless state of despair. And just like the book talks about terror, bewilderment, fear gripped my life. And it was a Sunday morning on February 2nd, 1992. I'd had a quarter rum at 10 o'clock in the morning with my last Irish drinking hostage. And I said to him, I was in hysteria and I was so confused about my life and I was crying and I was writhing and I was acting out and I was terrified. And I said, Tom, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And he looked at me and he said, Deborah, you gotta stop drinking. And I never heard that before. And you could have hit me over the head with a board and it infuriated me. I said, really, that's your solution? I was angry. I was full of contempt and hatred and vitriol. And I walked out of his life, slammed the door behind me and I came home and I walked in this house that I still inhabit, this beautiful house I still inhabit. And for whatever reason, this child who had long before given up any God of their understanding, I traded everything for alcohol. The goodness was sucked right out of me at that time. For whatever reason, full of fear, without a God in my life, I dropped to my knees and I sang out that alcoholic anthem, help me, can you help me? You know, my great grandfather talked about miracles all the time and I'd never witnessed a miracle. And in the forward to the second edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says this, the first edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written in 1939. And in 1955, the second edition comes out and the first line says this, since the first printing of the forward of this book, a wholesale miracle has taken place, a wholesale miracle. I was on my knees experiencing something that I can only equate to what a miracle is. And the word miracle means a sudden, wondrous, unexpected event, inexplicable by natural or scientific law. Something usually delivered by a divine agent. That's what miracle means. But the word wholesale means I've got something of value that I can sell you. And it's got a sufficient enough value that you can turn around and sell it to somebody else. And right there on my knees, that February 2nd, 1992, that was the first miracle that was to happen in my life. I didn't see it as a miracle then. For whatever reason, I watched that clock all night long and I hadn't taken a drink in eight hours. And by the time the dawn broke in the morning, I can only describe to you what has to be the second miracle. I called Alcoholics Anonymous and I said, can you help me? And one of those witty, upbeat, happy, joyous and free voices on the other end of the phone gave me an address and told me a time to come that there'd be a meeting and that I'd really, really like it. It had been a long time since I'd been invited anywhere or welcome anywhere, or even left the house to have a good time. And you know, that was the second miracle that I think happened in my life. And I went to that meeting. I went to that meeting that day and something extraordinary happened. 
A man reached out his hand to me and he said, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. We care. It'd been a really long time since I was worthy of anybody caring about me. I'd burnt down every single wonderful relationship in my life. I was absolutely a hollow shell of a human being and I was desperate and I had just enough game left to hoist that white flag of surrender and cross that threshold and walk into Alcoholics Anonymous and say what I will say to you tonight. Can you help me? Because you guys are what saved me. I didn't have a God when I got here and I made you my higher power. And I heard that one person speaking to another person was a power greater than myself. I just needed something. I just needed something. And I recognized you had what I needed. And when you talked about alcoholism and addiction, you described exactly what was wrong with me. And then you gave me a book. And in that book, in the doctor's opinion, I read something that clearly and succinctly connected for me what was wrong. It said in the doctor's opinion that if I ingest any mind-altering substance or alcohol, that I suffer from severe pathological mental deterioration. That was precisely what was wrong with me. I put alcohol in this body. I have a demagnetized moral compass. I don't know what's coming next, except I'm gonna rip through your life and anything or anyone that gets in the way. Severe pathological mental deterioration. I was insane. And the book talks about insanity in that beautiful step two, the second part of the second step. Wow. And you handed me a book and I began to read that book and I began to identify. And I came to meetings every day because your stories were different than me, but I related to everything you said. And when it wasn't my story, I had just enough left in the register up here that said, you know what, Deborah Carmen? That's your next yet. So I kept coming back because you guys not only taught me what was wrong with me, you told me how to get past what was wrong with me and how to have a life. You gave me promises. You told me about relationships with people. You told me about being of service, the unity of Alcoholics Anonymous, the connective tissue, the family I found here, you know, I don't have any children. I have so many children. I have so many children. I have so many people that I trudge this beautiful pilgrimage with. And I have a recipe book called Alcoholics Anonymous so that I don't have to rely on me cooking up the next day or how things should turn out. I just use all the ingredients in that book and the principles as described in the 12th step that I was able after living the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to practice these principles in all of my affairs, to carry the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, to restore me to sanity. 
I've been so blessed because you guys were so generous. You've continued to welcome me. I have a family here. I love you so much. I don't know how much time I have left, probably not any, but um, I wanna tell you if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I found a solution here and I had the uniquity going for a long time. I didn't do this program right, but I didn't drink or use no matter what. And I absolutely maintained as I do to this day, a healthy fear that I am terrified that I will ever use again. I am never gonna use again. And I'll tell you how I protect myself. Just as the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says on page 86 and 87, on awakening, I drop to my knees in the morning and I ask to be relieved of my best thinking and the insanity and the self-will. And I ask to be shown what those character defects are so that I can refresh my memory every day to try and be a better version of myself and get out of my own way. And I go through those 12 principles of recovery. They begin with honesty. And I, I say, how do these look in this day to day? And that if I can inhabit and live and project and engage and inspire and enlighten others with those principles, I know I'm gonna be okay.